to walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Ah, the dulcet tones of Nicole Kidman there, in case you were wondering. And diplomacy at NATO this week was far from quiet. The wheels are now in motion for a strengthened and expanded NATO across every domain, with the aim of deterring President Vladimir Putin from further attacks on Ukraine. I told Putin that if he invaded Ukraine, NATO would not only get stronger, but would get more united. And we would see, would see democracies in the world stand up and oppose his aggression and defend the rules-based order. That was the US President Joe Biden at the end of the three-day summit in Madrid. Well, meantime, the French President Emmanuel Macron has given the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, a very warm welcome yesterday at the Elysee Par- Palace in Paris. There were hugs, there were smiles and what seems to be a very formal reset of relations with uh, President Macron, declaring that our Prime Minister was not responsible for the rift caused by the cancelled subs deal. Now, there's a lot to explore on a foreign affair. We'll We'll also turn to the Pacific, where countries have also been coming together. A wonderful panel is here to guide you through all the resets and challenges that are playing out across the globe. Alan Beam is Director of the International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. Prior to that, he was a Senior Advisor to Penny Wong. Melissa Conley-Tyler is Program Lead at the Asia-Pacific Development, Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. And Stefan Fruling is the Acting Head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. Welcome to you all. Thank you, Kath. Good morning, Catherine. Stefan, I might begin with you. Just three years ago, the French President Emmanuel Macron described the NATO Security Alliance as strategically, and I quote, brain dead. Just how far has it come since then and just how significant was this summit of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation? The summit was very significant insofar as it really has breathed new life into NATO, um, not just because it it comes at the time of the Ukraine war, where it's really clear that Europe is not at peace anymore, as NATO has just said at the summit. Um, there is an active war going on in Europe um, and an expansionist Russia is openly threatening not just Ukraine, but also NATO members. But the second kind of element is also that this summit comes after the end of the Trump presidency, which um, obviously caused a lot of tensions and uncertainty about the future of the transatlantic alliance, which haven't completely dissipated. But there is definitely a reinvigoration of the transatlantic bond. Um, and in that sense, um, 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 a reinvigoration of NATO as well as an outcome of the Madrid summit. Just how big a shift are we seeing right now with NATO? Well, there are always elements of evolution and revolution in the sense that um, we see a, a very significant development in the prospective um, accession of, of Sweden and, and Finland to NATO. Um, now, Finland and Sweden have been moving closer to the alliance over the last few years already, 
Um, but obviously that expansion and the end of of neutrality um, um, as part of the so-called Nordic balance in Scandinavia is a very significant development. We're also seeing NATO recommit to forward defense and deterrence in a way that we really haven't seen since the end of the Cold War. So um, a very significant expansion of NATO's high readiness forces from about 40,000 to about 300,000, um, very significant mm. increase in forward positioning. Um, now, again, all of that, the, the groundworks of these had been laid after the, the, the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But we now see this accepted throughout the alliance as the main task for NATO in a way that wasn't the case before um, that, that invasion that started in, in February. So um, quite significant um, um, shifts in, in the alliance. And those are replicated across a, a range of other fields from infrastructure investment, a much greater in, in emphasis on cyber, on industry, and on a whole range of other, other fields where the alliance will be increasingly active. Stefan, I want to talk to you about Finland and Sweden that the being welcomed into uh, the alliance there. We know that that will uh, extend the border with Russia and that Sweden also has highly uh, capable militaries. What is the most important thing that they will both bring to the alliance? Well, both of them bring a number of things. I mean, highly capable forces, both in the case of Sweden and Finland. Um, both of them will bring important geography in the sense that the Baltic Sea is now almost a NATO lake, as it's been called. And certainly NATO's ability to forward base equipment, to plan on operating from Sweden and Finland in support of the Baltic countries, the, the three Baltic states, for example, makes it obviously a lot easier to plan for the defense of those countries. But they also bring important kind of political heft as as solid liberal democracies with a long tradition of 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 regional of engagement in regional security they are members of the eu so the the difference the overlap in the membership of the EU and NATO has become a lot more significant. Um, and overall, bringing those two formerly neutral countries into the transatlantic bond solidifies the political basis for Western unity around security, but also a lot of other issues in the in the Euro-Atlantic area. Mm. Melissa, I know you've recently returned from Warsaw in Poland, where NATO will now establish a permanent army headquarters. What's the sense there of this overhaul in the collective defence of Europe? In Warsaw, there was such a sense of that Western unity that, you know, the invasion of Ukraine has brought together, NATO has brought together the EU, and there's a, you know, common purpose, inflict a strategic defeat on Russia. Um, I think in itself, the fact that Sweden and Finland are joining NATO is a defeat. Um, but that idea of not just responding, but being prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory. I mean, that's a new, strong commitment, and I think that's come through very strongly in the summer. Mm, and, and for the polls there, it's really uh, so close as well, isn't it? <laughs> Mm, very much so. And, you know, that sense that in the past it has been Poland <laughs> that has mm. been in this situation, uh, that sense uh, of real solidarity uh, with Ukraine. Uh, and I think uh, the Poles would, would complement themselves that they've been a really important force for bringing together that NATO response because of their special relationship with the US, bringing together a more unified EU response, um, and, and they will be continuing to champion Alan, we know that uh, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is in Europe. He's been attending uh, NATO prior to now. And we had 
the NATO secretary for the first time really single out China, which was a surprise to some, and its growing military ambitions and its behaviour. And we also saw Anthony Albanese openly and publicly criticise China for failing to condemn Russia's actions in the Ukraine. If you were to pop on your advisor hat or your old advisor hat, I mean, was this a wise move for the PM to make these public comments about China? Look, the PM has done absolutely the right thing by attending that summit. Uh, What is happening in Europe is of global significance. Uh, They're long, long long-term partners of Australia's. And Russia's attack on the Ukraine impacts all of us. So he was absolutely right to be there and to be party to what I think is one of the most significant strategic reorientations of Europe in in 80 years. The meeting endorsed the strategic concept paper, which the Secretary-General Stoltenberg released. And I find it quite an extraordinary document, actually, because where it deals with China, it is totally unmistaken in the directness with which it registers Europe's appraisal of what has occurred. It actually says, the People's Republic of China's stated ambitions and coercive policies challenge our interests, security and values. And that, I think, is a really, really strong statement. And although it might well be sort of claimed that it's good American drafting, the fact is that all the members signed up to this. Mm. And I think that it means two really important things from an Australian perspective. First, that China has arrived as a global power. We know it's a, a regionally dominant one, but that is an acceptance of China's arrival as a global power. And the second is that China is seen by the Europeans as a threat. So the Prime Minister, in picking up on what is a very significant repositioning of NATO, was quite right, I think, to draw attention to the fact that China's implicit support for Russia is not in China's interests, nor is it in the interests of the Europeans and uh, Fortiora, it's not in the interests of Australia and New Zealand either. So, of course, he was right to, to pick up on that point because we have a stake in that. Now, if I'd been advising him, I might have used slightly different uh, language, but, I mean, the, the Chinese media have sort of piled in on him and um, Mm. he probably expected that. And uh, he was, though, nonetheless correct in calling out China's lack of uh, clarity on where it stands with respect to the invasion of a neighbouring country. Mm. Uh, Melissa, have you got a a specific view on on this in reaction to what Alan was just saying about how now Europe is considering China a threat? China has come out and now accused NATO of recreating this Cold War mentality uh, by openly expressing a rivalry. Uh, the Chinese state media, as Alan just alluded to, has described uh, the PM's comments as ignorant. Is this where you see us heading? Um, I would come from the perspective that all countries have a stake in a world in which big countries can't invade their neighbours. Um, I'm a great believer in international law and, and that's something I think Australia has to stand for. Uh, 
I don't think it's in Australia's interest to set it up in blocks, you know, to, to only care if it's a threat to the West, for example. We should care about violations of international law wherever they happen, whenever they happen, including when it's our friends, which of course is difficult. Um, but I, I think the way you, you have to talk about this with countries, say, like India or Indonesia, very big, important countries, they don't sign up for US primacy for the West. They probably don't even sign up for rules-based order because they'd see that as coming from a particular paradigm. But they can sign up for a system of international law which constrains major powers. And and so I think that's the sort of rhetoric I would be using. Um, and that's actually what we've often used when we're talking to India, to Indonesia, etc. Mm. Stefan, just how big a departure is this calling out of China from NATO's original purpose, which as we know was to give Western Europe a US security guarantee against invasion by the Soviet Union. Now it has publicly and openly pivoting part of its focus and talking about the Indo-Pacific and Taiwan. It is a significant departure, which has been happening kind of gradually building up over the last two years. And it's part of NATO assuming a more global view of its interests and the facts that the, the issues that can affect its own security. There's a saying in, in NATO that in many ways, NATO is not kind of like going to the Indo-Pacific, but the Indo-Pacific is coming to NATO. And I think it's the sense that China is becoming more active, not just militarily, but also through infrastructure investment and politically and diplomatically in the in the Euro-Atlantic area, including in Africa, um, that is driving a lot of that European interest. And I think that there is a distinct change in the way that the Ukraine invasion has affected the way that Europe looks at, looks at China. Um, the no limits partnership um, between Russia and China that was like announced just before the invasion obviously colors the perception of China. There's a question about we, we didn't kind of like realize the change in Russia's attitude. We were behind the ball in, 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 in addressing the Russia threat. Are we making the same mistake with China? Um, questions about to what extent economic integration with Russia has obviously failed to constrain Russian behavior. Do we need to rethink the same with China? So there's a there's a distinct change in the way that Europe is now looking at at, at China through a almost Russia lens. Mm. And there's also a distinct change effect of the Ukraine invasion itself on China's engagement in in the Euro-Atlantic area, in particular the deliberate imposition of a famine in significant parts of the world by Russia deliberately restricting Ukrainian grain exports um, presents an opportunity for a country like China, but also Russia, to run a narrative in those countries in sub-Saharan Africa in particular who are affected by this as blaming kind of like the, that famine on NATO sanctions on the West and so on. And that is recognized as something that the West needs to actively respond to, not necessarily through NATO, it's much more the EU that is active in this, um, but ultimately a sense that in the end, if we want to de defend and, and maintain the rules-based order, we actually need to make sure that that rules-based order delivers for countries who are not directly part of like a Chinese, Russian or a European and transatlantic camp. And I think that all of those considerations are now assuming an urgency that they simply didn't yet um, before the invasion. Mm. Well, if you just tuned in, this is A Foreign Affair on ABCRN. I'm Catherine Robinson and I'm joined on the panel by Alan Beam, who is the Director of the International and Security Affairs Program at the Australian Institute, Melissa Conley-Tyler, Program Lead at the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue 
Dialogue, and Stefan Fruling, who is the acting head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. Alan, if we can turn uh, our attention now to uh, our PM's visit to France, uh, we know that the payout has been settled in relation to the uh, scrapped submarine deal. It was an expensive, an expensive deal, an expensive payout. But in this visit to Paris, what do you see Anthony Albanese's uh, motivations here? Is it about resetting relations? Is it about economics? What do you see as the reason behind this focus? I think he'd have a number of reasons for uh, a visit to to France. Uh, there was a mess to be cleaned up. I mean, the uh, the mishandling of the cancellation of the submarine contract with France was pretty spectacular. Uh, not least of all, the French decision to withdraw their ambassadors from both Washington and Canberra. Uh, unprecedented, overworked word I know, but unprecedented in US history because the French have been in Washington since Jefferson. So, the impact of that on Australia's relationship with France was pretty significant. And it was absolutely uh, in Australia's interest, in my opinion, for the Prime Minister to make that visit to Paris and to talk frankly and openly with the President to say, well, you know, that kind of thing is not how we see the relationship. We want to get back to where we've always been, which is a pretty constructive and and close relationship with France. I don't think he would have um, made any uh, sort of strong references to how we might pick up the submarine contract. I, I just don't think that that is a probability at the moment. But more importantly, I think what he was seeking to do is to make sure that in the economic, social and political level, um, Australia and France are back to normal. And um, that's the sort of thing that prime ministers do in a stitched up, connected world. Mm. It's a very good move, in my opinion. And without really mending relations with France, Alan, a free trade arrangement would not be possible. That's correct. And and uh, the free trade thing is, is nonetheless interesting. And there are a fair few hurdles in front of that as time goes by. But uh, I think too, uh, we in Australia need to recognise that, that France is actually a neighbour. Um, France is a Pacific power. And uh, in the reshaping of the economic and strategic um, contours of the Pacific, uh, Australia and France have very, very much aligned interests and we've got aligned capabilities. So I should have thought that the Pacific would also have played into the conversation between President Macron and Prime Minister Albanese. Uh, Melissa, if we can turn our attention now to Southeast Asia, we know that uh, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong is visiting Vietnam and Malaysia right now. She's spoken of shared futures, um, addressing challenges together. Why do do you think she is uh, pushing so hard to win over Southeast Asia in rebranding Australia's image? Well, look, if, if you don't have strong relations with Southeast Asia, there's a hole at the centre of your Indo-Pacific strategy. I mean, Australia has to put Southeast Asia as one of its key regions of focus. Um, I'm particularly delighted to see that sort of shared future language because uh, that's what we've been pushing very strongly at the Asia-Pacific Development, Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, that sense of what we can be together with Southeast Asia, whether it's 
for example, um, being a climate leader where we can help Southeast Asia with its green energy transition as a security partner, as a partner for post-COVID economic growth. There is so much Australia can be doing and that means putting Southeast Asia as a key focus, which I think, um, you know, Foreign Minister Wong has very clearly done. Mm. Alan, I know that you have thoughts on uh, Minister Wong's uh, visit. Um, How would you characterise it? I mean, she seems to have been very welcomed by um, the people, particularly in Malaysia, going back to her birthplace. Oh, look, I think think the Foreign Minister has shown a particularly delicate and deft touch in Malaysia. But I think the speech that she gave in Kuala Lumpur, where she opened up, on her grandmother, her popo, and the the history of her family uh, as Malaysians uh, was was particularly clever, and then to have moved in that speech on to education as as the, the sort of the glue that really does hold Malaysia and Australia together was also extremely clever. I mean, uh, I served in Malaysia quite a long time ago, and the Colombo plan was still working in those days. And there's no doubt that that link between Australia and Malaysia through our colleges and our universities remains a very powerful one. But I think her visit to Kota Kinabalu was just so, so clever because it says to everybody in Southeast Asia, I understand how you all work because I work the same way. Mm. Um, And I think that that sort of sensitivity has long been lacking in the actual exercise of our diplomacy, Australian diplomacy in Southeast Asia, and she's brought it right back into the middle, that we have to resonate with the cultural vibes of Southeast Asia and, as you know, I mean... Everybody in Southeast Asia always returns to the places that their families come from because of the power of the family in making the the national social construct. And so for Senator Wong to do that, I think, was absolutely brilliant and unique, Mm. I think, in her capacity to deliver a different image for Australia in Asia. And Alan, just staying with this before we head to conclude on Ukraine, I'm really interested to hear, given that you worked with... Penny as recent, uh, Minister Wong, as recently as 2019. This was pre-pandemic, pre-Ukraine. It was a very different place to be working, but we were still, I imagine, very aware of the challenges facing our country. Did you have a strong sense of the diplomatic work that lay ahead? Oh, yes. Um, and and I think one of the reasons that uh, in that period that um, I was privileged to work with uh, Penny one of the reasons that I think she got somebody as as old and crusty as I am (laughs) is to work through the many obstacles that we've created for ourselves over the last two decades in the way in which we manage our relationships in Southeast Asia. And so she was doing a huge amount of spade work back in sort of uh, 2017, 18, up to the election in 19, to, to put in place the building blocks on which she was going to construct her approach to foreign policy, mm. and and all of the, that work can be read in the in the speeches essentially that she gave during that period, and they were very very deliberate speeches. I mean, she addressed issues of identity, values, uh, national interests, 
uh, in the plural, mm. um, and and talked about how you recalibrate relationships based on where you want to go, much less on where you've been, mm. and to focus on opportunity rather than problems. And that's exactly the way in which she's carrying out her work, both yeah. in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. We have seen that very much so with all her um, her travels to the Pacific and also to Southeast Asia. If we can conclude, though, on the Ukraine and uh, Stefan it's highly likely that the Prime Minister will visit Ukraine, uh, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Just how important are these sorts of visits from a Ukrainian point of view? And what might our Prime Minister expect from uh, the Ukrainian president? Look, I think it's really important for prime ministers and presidents to go and visit um, um, Kiev at the moment to demonstrate solidarity, not just to the Ukrainian people who are obviously in a desperate situation, but also to demonstrate solidarity to um, to Ukraine in a visible sense um, 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 towards Moscow and the rest of the Western Western community. I mean, we are. This war will go on for many months. Um, we are in this for the long haul, and I think. And kind of demonstrating a personal kind of engagement commitment to maintaining that support to Ukraine, despite the economic um, and consequences for the West and the strategic consequences um, for the West, is really important to kind of give both the wider West, but particularly the Ukrainians, the confidence that um, they're not they're not going to be left alone, um, and that um, we are going to support them to turn the the fortunes of this war um, in their favour. How um, might we see our Prime Minister Albanese pop up there if indeed he goes, given the security ramifications around it? Look, I think he will kind of like follow in the footsteps of, of a number of prime ministers and presidents who came before him who all travelled by train from Poland. Um, um, I mean, um, and, and that's a few hours off trip. Um, um, and then and then spend probably a day or two so in, in, in Kiev before before returning the same way. Obviously, air travel is impossible under these conditions, but travel by train is now well established as a way for like senior um, officials to travel and, 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 and prime ministers to travel to Kiev. Mm. Uh, Melissa, we know earlier that Stefan mentioned the grain crisis and what's going on mm. all around the world as a result of that. I mean, how careful does Australia need to tread and how we offer to help and also keeping in mind that we are grain exporters as well and can fill that that gap? Look, food security worldwide is a massive issue and is going to get worse. Um, Australia, I think, can take a very strong role. Um, we can support international institutions. We, as you say, are an exporter ourselves. And I think in particular through the G20, um, through our seat there, we have an opportunity to try to encourage countries not to put in place the protectionist measures that are going to lead to even more food insecurity and even more global hunger. So I think watching ahead with Indonesia's hosting of, of G20, looking at how we can play a constructive role there, I think will be very important. Alan, do you have a view on this as well, on the food security issue and how Australia can, can play a part? The issue here, I think, is that the events in Europe impact on Australia and the Prime Minister is completely right in, in uh, taking, undertaking a visit to Kiev, if that's what he does. Um, 
I also think that it signals something else to Australians, and that is that we are properly a member of the G20. We're about the 13th biggest economy in the world. We're a continent. We're, we're a pretty strong country, and we should represent ourselves that way, um, and you know, we should not apologise for ourselves, but we should play the role that we capably can do. And in matters about how you construct institutions and rules, uh, in, in export policy, particularly on agricultural uh, products, Australia's in a, a really very strong position. And that's exactly why the Prime Minister should signal that, not just to the Europeans, but also to our own community here. Alan, Melissa and Stefan, it's been fabulous talking to you all. Thank you. Thank you, Kath. Thank you. Melissa Conley-Tyler is Program Lead at the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. Alan Beam is Director of International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. He was a Senior Advisor to Penny Wong until 2019 and he's also got a new book out, No Enemies, No Friends, Restoring Australia's Global Relevance. And Stefan Fruling is the Acting Head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Some interesting feedback on that that interview there. Thank you for all those texting in. That number is 0418 should you want to get in touch. Uh, someone's come through saying a one-sided discussion, NATO's expansion means the end of peace. Another one there in terms of world politics. I must confess to being much more concerned about the US beginning to self-destruct through an openly hostile Supreme Court. Very disturbing. Some interesting takes there.